You may have heard the story about Steve who fell into a fountain. Uh, It happened a couple weeks ago at a waterfront company um, in Washington, D.C. And this company, they had just hired Steve, actually a security robot. um, And this was Steve's first week on the job securing the premises. And his first encounter was evidently with a fountain. And he ran right into it and tipped over and started floating face down. Uh, The Twitter comments about this story are worth at least five minutes of your day. Very funny. Uh, But in many sectors, robots are replacing humans. Economists say that the outsourcing we should really be concerned about is not international outsourcing, but rather outsourcing to non-humans. And in general, technology is crowding out more and more human interaction. There's more screen time, more social media, more gaming, more pornography, but less truly human interaction. Uh, This all adds up to a a real crisis for friendship. So there is an erosion of friendship in our society. Uh, Back in 1990, surveys showed that the average American had 3.5 friendships. Uh, People who really uh, feel your pains and pleasures. True friends. Uh, Today, that number is just 1.8 friends per person. So there's been a halving of that number in just 20, 25 years. Uh, There's a loneliness epidemic, and people are trying to compensate for that loss through technological means. We're outsourcing our friendship capacity from humans to technology, and it's not going well. Uh, Arthur Brooks wrote a book in 2008 called Gross National Happiness. Uh, Arthur Brooks is uh, uh, an economist. He calls himself a social scientist of happiness. Uh, So he's devoted his entire career uh, to trying to find out what makes people happy. And in his years of research, um, he's suggested that the happiness equation is generally much simpler than we might guess. He says that there are basically four things that drive human happiness. The first is, do you have a theological foundation to be able to deal with death and suffering? death and and suffering. And then secondly, um, do you have a family, people who who love you and really, really care about you? And then third, do you have a community? In addition to family, do you have community, which he defines as two or three uh, friends kind of who have this expansive view of the self that will absorb your cares and concerns. They'll weep and grieve with you, and they'll also celebrate and rejoice with you. Do you have a community like that? And then number four, do you have work, a sense of uh, calling and and vocation and purpose? So faith, family, uh, community defined as two or three true friends, and work. Now, I mention that just to point out that there's some reliable observations that suggest that friendship is really a a basic component, one of a few key ingredients to human happiness, something we all want. Technology can make life more and more convenient, but it can't make life truly better. But friendships can. When the Bible talks about friendship, it usually binds two ideas together. Uh, being friends with God, and being friends with others. So the ideal friend uh, is a selfless or self-giving friend. And this is a quality uh, that the one who is a friend of God has the greatest capacity for because he's been shown such selflessness. God has modeled that self-giving spirit to us. So loving God, uh, being known and befriended by him, And loving others, being a good friend, are really integral to one another. 
and the one who is not a friend of God won't be the best friend that he could be. You know, so even sweet institutions like camaraderie and, it, uh, and, and friendship can be distorted if they're unattached to some higher calling. Uh, for instance, uh, think of some of the stupidest things that you've ever done. You were probably in your 20s, right? Um, and you probably weren't alone when you did those things. Uh, you called those people friends at the time. Friendship uh, with others, if it's detached from friendship with God, uh, will never reach the ideal. It will leave you being less than all that you could be, but on the other hand, a friend of God is a good friend to others. And this morning, as we continue moving through the life of David, we come to the story of David's friendship with King Saul's son, Jonathan. And this story really shows us both kinds of friendship. Uh, friendship with God and friendship with others. And we learn that Jonathan was such a good friend to David precisely because he uh, loved God and believed his promises about David. And likewise, David was a good friend to Jonathan as a reflection of God's love and faithfulness. So we'll consider this friendship and then also how it points us to that greater friendship uh, with God. There are three stages in the story of David and Jonathan's friendship. There's commitment, uh, crisis, and then culmination. So first of all, let's look at the commitment of their friendship. Uh, In verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 18, again, verse 1 says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then verse 3 says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe uh, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, what Jonathan does here wasn't unusual. These kind of personal covenants freely entered into were, were common. And giving or exchanging armor seems to have been a custom in, in ancient times as a, as a symbol or sign of a covenant like this. But what's really surprising is that the king's son would enter into a covenant like this with a shepherd boy. Jonathan is next in line for the throne, uh, which means that for David to prevail, Jonathan would inevitably lose it all. And yet we see him giving himself to David. So the armor, the sword, and and all that is really just a way of saying, I pledge my soul to you. It's, It's a pledge of loyalty. And it's at this point that we see something fundamental about what friendship is. Uh, Friendship is a self-giving commitment. So part of the reason that Jonathan is such a compelling figure is because he does something that's so contrary to human nature. You know, our problem, and and really the problem that we always have uh, when it comes to friendship, is that we are so basically self-centered, which David Foster Wallace captured beautifully. Uh, when he says this, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow. 
but your own thoughts are so immediate, urgent, real. But in friendship, in any particular friendship, uh, we're always trying to push back against this uh, default setting, this basic feature of our humanity, so that rather than being self-centered, friendship is self-giving. It's not asking uh, what social status will this friendship give me or how will this friendship advance my career? Am I receiving more happiness than difficulty because of this relationship? You know, friendship is not a cost-benefit analysis like that. So think of marriage, which is really just uh, an intense, uh, permanent friendship. And in marriage, you make a commitment up front, a commitment that's for better or for worse, so it, it's not self-seeking. And it's also to have and to hold. Uh, so it's, it's self-giving. Marriage has, has some unique features that, that other relationships don't have. But in, in many ways, it's just an intense version of dynamics that ought to be true of friendship. You know, and this self-giving dynamic uh, is certainly part of that. So in the New Testament, we have a letter from the Apostle Paul to uh, the church in Thessalonica. And he says uh, to that church... Um, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We were ready to share with you our own selves. What a beautiful description of friendship, being ready to share your own self with another person. It's self-giving. And Christian friendship is marked by a distinct kind of commitment. So in another place, uh, the Apostle Paul says to his protege, Timothy, uh, um, flee, he says to Timothy, you should flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul is giving Timothy instruction here in one sense on how to be and how to choose a good friend. You be a good friend by running from selfish passions and then also by cultivating uh, this self-giving love and and righteousness and faith and peace. And then you choose a good friend uh, by being on the lookout for those who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. That is someone who is genuinely seeking God. Uh, So David says in Psalm 63, Uh, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And Paul is saying to Timothy that someone who has that kind of heart, someone who is earnestly seeking God, uh, will make the best friend. So the distinct kind of commitment that Christian friendship ought to have is that it's aimed at seeking God together. And this also ends up being like a Bible lesson on how to choose someone to marry well. So if you're single and you're thinking about uh, who you're going to marry, uh, the counsel here seems to be start with yourself. Begin by being a marriage quality person, you know, learning to deny those selfish, immature passions and impulses that we have. And then at the same time, cultivate uh, mature, reliable patterns of integrity or righteousness, service, which is love. 
and resolving, not running from conflicts, which is that, that peace element that Paul mentions. So start there, cultivate these things, and then do that along with someone who is genuinely seeking God. So your list of the kinds of things you want in a spouse, uh, whether that list is in your head or you've actually written that down, uh, that list has to transcend the five senses. It really should be dominated by what kind of person that uh, you are seeking. You know, who, who are they like with God? Are they genuinely seeking God? And then other considerations will kind of fall in line after that. So again, Christian friendships have this distinct kind of commitment. Seeking each other's mutual good in Christ. Giving yourself to another person for that aim. Um, Aristotle uh, is known for three categories that he gave on, on friendship. He, the, the first um, kind of friendship that Aristotle describes is the friendship of utility, where two people develop a friendship, but each really seeking their own good, uh, looking for some benefit that they'll get out of that relationship. So this might be like a, a business partnership or kind of business networking kind of relationship or maybe a, a study partner uh, at school. Aristotle's second category of friendship then is the friendship of pleasure. Uh, he says we like hanging out with witty people because they have great personalities. We don't necessarily like them for who they are in themselves, but for the pleasure that they bring us. We enjoy being with them. They, they make us happy, give us kind of a social high. Uh, so this would be like the, the dinner party guest or maybe the person you share a hobby with and enjoy hanging out with. And Aristotle says that uh, adults usually seek out uh, the utility friendships because they prioritize profit. What will this gain me? And youth tend to seek out pleasure friendships because they're driven by emotion. Do I, am I enjoying this relationship? But then the third category that Aristotle gives is the friendship of the good, which happens when both friends are virtuous in and of themselves and when they also have a shared vision of what the good is and then work together uh, to attain that vision of the good. Now, of course, these kinds of friendships will end up bringing profit and pleasure, but they aren't organized around profit or pleasure, uh, but rather around each other's good and a common vision of what the good is. In fact, friendships built on this kind of commitment and selflessness are, are really the kind of the happiest friendships to have. They'll bring the most profit and the most pleasure. And Aristotle's third category here seems to capture um, the, the, the friendship between David and Jonathan a friendship of the good. They had a shared understanding of what the good was and were seeking it together. We, we may need to revive this third category. You know, we, we have categories for same-sex acquaintances and we have category for marriage, though that may be somewhat of an endangered species, but what about these deep and intimate same-sex friendships that aren't sexual in nature? You know, the kind of covenant friendship that we find here in David and Jonathan. You know, we were designed for this. Uh, from the very beginning, God had said, it's not good that man should be alone. And that comment relates not only to marriage, but also communicates a fundamental principle about our design as human beings. We were created as relational beings. Uh, designed in God's image, he made us for relationship with other people. Now, the stereotype is that men, in particular, are not good at this. But Christian men uh, should be and should model skill in self-giving commitment in relationships. You know, there, there, there ought to be some of these elements in all of our relationships, but 
you ought to have a few friendships in particular that receive this fullest, almost covenantal sort of self-giving commitment. So again, the emphasis here is on self-giving, not self-seeking. So the thought at this point should be, um, well, it should not be why isn't someone being this kind of friend to me, uh, but rather should be, am I being this kind of friend uh, to others? So this is what we see in their friendship then from the very beginning. Uh, Commitment to each other's mutual good, uh, which for the Christian, uh, that mutual good will be progress in love for God and growth in, in faith and following Jesus. And then that commitment um, will we'll prepare the way for the second stage of friendship, which in Jonathan David, we see that second stage is crisis. So no sooner had uh, Jonathan and David become friends uh, than Jonathan's father, Saul, begins to recognize David's military success and he begins to feel threatened. And so the very next story that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18 is about Saul trying to kill David. But remember that David represents God's victory for Israel. God had liberated his people Israel from their archenemy, the Philistines, by giving them victory over them in in the battle with Goliath. Uh, And he had done that through David. And yet Saul, instead of feeling grateful, uh, feels threatened by David. And, And even though David is loyal to King Saul in, in every way. Uh, still, Saul tries to kill him and then have him killed. So there's this external crisis uh, for David. His life is endangered. And this brings about a crisis of a different sort for Jonathan uh, because now Jonathan is torn between his friend and his father. This is more of an internal crisis, like a, a crisis of loyalty. Will he be true to his friend or will he betray his friend? And of course, loyalty to David means setting aside his own claim to the throne. And so it's a test of his own selflessness. And yet, Jonathan believes uh, God's promise that David would be the next king of Israel. And Jonathan not only believed it, but also trusted that God's decision on that matter was right. So Jonathan believed that despite appearances, David would prevail in the end as God's anointed one. Sure, right now he may seem like the underdog to Saul with a ragtag militia and no official sponsors and hunted and outlawed, but at some point still to come, David's reign would be established. God had promised that and Jonathan believed it and then was loyal to David on the basis of that promise. So they both face a crisis. And here's where the friendship really shines. You know, Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. This is the moment where a friendship shines. We all have these kinds of crises. Friendships will encounter crises of all sorts, you know, both external like David's and internal like Jonathan's. Uh, the external crisis would be any of those many difficulties that life is full of. And friendship should make those difficulties easier to bear. So major life disruptions like the the loss of a job or uh, the death of someone close to you will be much easier to bear with the help of a friend. In 1 Samuel 23, which Becky read earlier, um, David was in the wilderness. He's being hunted by Saul. And Jonathan goes out into the wilderness to meet David and says, uh, Do not fear. For the hand of Saul shall not find you. You shall be the next king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. 
The verse right before that said that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God and then encouraged him with these promises. Jonathan believed uh, God's promise that David would be the next king. And then on the basis of that promise, he goes to David and encourages him in the wilderness. And this is how friendships operate. When you see your friend in a wilderness, you go to them with the promises of God. And you say something like, God won't fail you, and I'll be next to you. And then since you're sharing part of that burden with them, it's like it becomes lighter for them and easier to bear. Do you help carry your friends through the difficulties they face? So there's these external crises, but then there will also be internal crises. And something that's internal to a friendship might be something like a conflict between friends or disagreements, uh, betrayals, or being wronged in some way. And the way to deal with these moments is by seeking and giving forgiveness over and over again. If friends have a duty to forgive, and, and actually f- forgiveness uh, in the Christian context is the very mark of true love and friendship. And in some ways, this is the harder crisis for any friendship to face. Going through suffering together uh, can bring a sense of solidarity and unity, but when a spouse or a close friend wounds you in some way, that doesn't exactly draw you close to them. And yet, loyal love will extend forgiveness hundreds of times over. And the interesting thing is um, that as hard as forgiveness may be, as difficult as it is to not resent and grow bitter over someone who's wounded you or betrayed you, there's actually surprising fulfillment and solidarity on the far side of reconciliation. So there was a longitudinal study done uh, that showed that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if the couple just stays together and doesn't get divorced. Which is interesting. It means that if they persevere together through the tough times, there will be happiness on the far side of that tested loyalty to each other. And of course, in in either kind of crisis, um, the the external crisis like like David faced or this internal crisis sort of testing of loyalty, uh, Christian friendships ought to be profoundly affected by the example of Jesus in the gospel. You know, we, God's creatures, have rejected, we have betrayed our creator. This is what one theologian calls cosmic treason. We've turned our backs on God. And yet Jesus Christ God himself in human flesh comes and suffers the consequences of that cosmic treason in our place so that rather than being eternally separated from God, the friend we've betrayed, we can be eternally reunited to him. Jesus absorbed our sin and then extends forgiveness to us. And so that's the shape that every Christian friendship must take, absorbing sin and extending forgiveness. You may find yourself in a friendship or in a marriage right now where you are absorbing the wounds uh, in your own wounds, uh, someone else's sin. Where would you find the motivation uh, for loyalty in response to a challenge like that? Only by returning to the story of the gospel over and over 
remembering that to God, we are all the offending party, and yet he has offered forgiveness to us in Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which friendships then will be this this constant back and forth between commitment and crisis. Uh, In fact, the the commitment is an an essential, um, it's like a prerequisite to weathering and being able to face together the seasons of crisis in friendship. And then those seasons of crisis are actually priceless as they reveal weak spots in our commitment that we must then strengthen and then we emerge into an even deeper and more solid friendship. You know, Stacy and I have been through some fairly unhappy seasons of marriage, and yet uh, the unity that we enjoy now is all the deeper because of those storms that we've weathered together. There's a parallel to this also in church membership, uh, you know, joining and committing yourself to a local church, which is, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, a kind of a natural expression of uh, a Christian will be committing himself uh, or herself in, in actual relationships in, in a local church. But, but that commitment uh, will always be tested. So, for instance, if you're a member of Christ's Covenant, and if, if you've been here for more than a few months, I'm sure you've already run into some kind of crisis, even if small. Uh, some relational conflict with another person in the church, maybe some uh, disappointments with, uh, with me or some other leadership in the church. But that, that commitment made up front should sustain some of those stresses along the way. Uh, you may remember there's, there's a list of um, commitments that you sign when you become a member, and those commitments are uh, that, that well. First of all, they're taken straight from the New Testament, but but secondly, they're they're just extremely practical in greasing the rough spots for smooth operation and relationships in the church, because upfront commitment always works to sustain relationships in the very various kinds of tensions and difficulties that are sure to come. That's true in marriage, it's true in church membership, and it's true in all friendships and relationships. Upfront commitment sustains relationships in the midst of difficulty. And so the relationship between Jonathan and David exhibits these biblical dynamics. And now notice uh, this this third stage in their friendship, which is the, the culmination of their friendship. The culmination, the result, that is, of their, their covenant uh, friendship for both of them, and but for both of them it brought blessing. So their friendship ended up being invaluable to them. For David, of course, the friendship actually saved his life on multiple occasions. Uh, God fulfilled his promises uh, to, to David through Jonathan. Um, so the king's entire army was hunting David at one point. You know, how would he escape that? Well, God ended up doing that through Jonathan. And then consider this. Uh, Jonathan was unbelievably loyal to David, which, which must have left a, a deep impression on David. And then there's this story later on where, um, Jonathan, or where David and Saul actually end up in a cave together at the same time. You may remember this, one of the funnier stories of the Old Testament. Saul is actually relieving himself uh, in the cave, and David comes upon him, and instead of killing him, um, securing his own spot for the throne, uh, just cuts the edge off of his garment and, uh, and doesn't kill him. And it, his men are astounded at this. Why would David show loyalty uh, to even his enemy, King Saul? Well, David says, how could I put out my hand against the Lord's anointed? Which is exactly 
what Jonathan says about David. You see the same kind of loyalty that Jonathan showed to David on the basis of God's promise that David would be the next king. Then David ends up showing that same kind of loyalty towards Saul on the basis of God's choice of Saul. He was the Lord's anointed also. In other words, Jonathan and David became the same sort of person. You'll always become what your friends are, which is a great blessing if you've chosen well. And it's not only David that's blessed, but also Jonathan. So in 2 Samuel, uh, which gives us more of the the story of David actually reigning as king as as he comes to the throne and is established. In 2 Samuel, David shows faithful kindness to Mephibosheth. Uh, Jonathan's son. I'm so glad I got that out right. I was afraid that I would actually ruin that. Um, uh, Mephibosheth, you may remember, was uh, Jonathan's son who was dropped as a child. Uh, So he's lame in both feet. He can't walk. Now, normally, contestants for the throne would be uh, killed off. If they're from a former dynasty, you'd get rid of them so that you don't have a challenge to the throne, especially uh, when you have a sitting duck like Mephibosheth. But David brings him into the royal household. Instead of killing him, he actually brings him close. And in 2 Samuel 9, he says he does that for Jonathan's sake. So in a sense, what Jonathan had told David, you will be the next king of Israel and I will be beside you. That comes true through Jonathan's son. And so the family line is preserved and blessed because of that friendship. So nearer to the end of their lives then, both men could have looked back and seen how much of um, the blessing that God had brought to them, uh, the ways that God had fulfilled his promises to them, had actually come through that friendship. Now, from this vantage point, we can see clearly the significance of the friendship between Jonathan and David. And underlying all of this, Jonathan believed God's choice of David and chose loyalty to God's chosen king. Jonathan is the model of a true friend. And because he sided with God's chosen king, God brings blessing to him and his whole household to come. But really, the the underlying foundation of this whole friendship was God's promise and purposes for David and for the whole uh, nation of Israel. And the friendship between these two men attained the ideal because they both believed God's promises and then they built their friendship and organized it around that faith in God. And this story is like a miniature version of the whole Bible. Uh, This story, like all the stories of the Bible, is really part of a much bigger story, but this small story actually has the same theme as that much bigger story, which is that God will exalt his chosen king, and all of those who rally around him will be blessed. God will certainly, unfailingly exalt his chosen king, and everyone who makes themselves a friend of him will be blessed. God has anointed and chosen his own son, Jesus Christ, as the king over everything forever. He is the true king, the king to whom David points us. And God has committed himself to show eternal kindness. Despite the crisis of human sinfulness and our opposition to God, uh, God has committed himself to show eternal kindness to the friends of Christ, culminating in eternal blessing for all of those 
who will make themselves friends of Jesus. So the most basic question isn't even, am I being a good friend? Uh, But rather, am I a friend of God and his son Jesus? And the quality of your friendship with Christ then will have a direct correlation to the quality of your friendship with others. So it's the best Christians who will end up being the best friends and it's also the best Christians who will end up being the best spouses. And this is because Christ has most fully exhibited and enabled uh, the ideal of all that our friendships ought to be. In John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, love each other as I have loved you. In other words, be the same kind of friends to one another as I have been toward you. And then Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, God offers friendship to you. He will call you a friend. And he is the best friend you could ever hope for. This is incredible that God will eternally commit himself to those who respond to this offer of friendship. Don't you want a friend who will utterly commit himself to you, who has even laid down his life for you and who will always be loyal to you, never abandon you in any crisis, and who will bring blessing and eternal happiness to you. All that we could ever hope to be or have in a friend, God has been all of that and more to us in Christ. So as we think about friendship, there are really two friendships that we have to consider. Friendship with others, for sure. How are you doing in that? Uh, But even more importantly, friendship with God. Are you a friend of God? Have you uh, set your affections and your commitment toward Jesus Christ? Are you loyal to him? Those who are friends of God will never be without a friend. Let's pray.